Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. Recording is taking place online in the era of physical distancing. Esperanza Cintron is the author of three books of poetry, Visions of a Post-Apocalyptic Sunrise, the 2013 Naomi Long Magic Award winner, What Keeps Me Sane, and Chocolate City Latina. Her poetry has been anthologized many times. She has been awarded a Michigan Council for the Arts Individual Artist Grant, the Metro Times Poetry Prize, Callaloo Creative Writing Fellowships at Oxford and Brown Universities, and a National Endowment for the Humanities Scholarship. A native Detroiter, she is co-founder of the Sisters of Color Writers Collective and creator of its literary journal Seeds, for which she served as editor until 2006. Cintron holds a doctorate in English literature and teaches writing, film, and literature. Her latest work is Shades, Detroit Love Stories, a collection of interconnected short stories published by Wayne State University Press. Welcome, Esperanza Cintron. Thank you. Well, that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> so you've had so much success as a poet over the years, but you've also written fiction, including some romance. How does your writing process or your routine differ when you're creating fiction as opposed to poetry? Um, I don't think there's a lot of difference for me because I'm a stickler for the language and sometimes that slows down the fiction. I tend to edit and edit because I'm always looking for that melodic line. So to me, there's not a whole lot of difference. It's just that when you're writing fiction, um, you have to pay much more attention to the elongated construction because you know, you've got to make sure that things are consistent. But it's still about the language. I think it's about the beauty of the language, you know. But <laughs> yeah, that's very evident in your short short stories. I mean, the imagery is just gorgeous in so Thank many. You. And I felt like you brought a poet's sensibility to those stories. So Shades Detroit Love Stories is your debut short story collection, even though you've published a lot of other things. What inspired you to publish a collection of interconnected love stories and short stories? They were stories that my mother told me, actually. My mother has been gone for over a decade now, but she used to tell us stories about things that happened to people that she knew. So that, that's how it began. And I started to write those stories down. And of course, you know, you change them and fix them and de develop them. But they began with, I guess, folk tales that, I guess you'd call them folk tales because they were stories that, that the women in my family told. And, you know, some of them are based on truth, you know, but when you're doing fiction, of course, um, you're going to go for the, the thing that is most, uh, I don't want to say exciting, but the thing that has, that holds the reader. It's, yeah, that holds the reader, you know, I don't know. 
How has growing up in, and living in Detroit influenced your writing? Oh my God, it's, it's everything, actually. I mean, you think about it in terms of, I mean, I was born here and, uh, you know, first we lived on, in Southwest Detroit, then we moved to the West Side. So I've pretty much lived on every side of town and I've seen the changes happen. Um, so, you know, being working class, being black, being Latin, all of those things influence how I perceive the world, you know? And yeah, being, I, for, for me personally, I think being a Detroiter is one of the best things that could have ever happened to me because it's really made my life richer, you know, because there's just so much gravel. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Grit gravel there's so much to hold on to there's so much to to play with to texture do you know what i mean mm -hmm. anyway <laughs> we know what you mean the new collection shades is made up of love stories but the entire collection functions as a sort of love letter to detroit i think what do you hope readers will learn about detroit and the people of detroit through this short story collection um I know that it's kind of crazy. One of my reviewers um, said that it was about the underbelly and I was really insulted. And I guess I still am insulted because I don't see it as being about the underbelly. Uh, it's about some, some of the people are poor. Some of the people are black. Some of the people are, are Latino. That to me is not an underbelly. That is my life. That is the way I see things. So I was really insulted that they use that term because, you know, because we're dealing with, with poor people often or we're dealing with people of color. We are certainly not the underbelly. We are human. We are. And that that is the main thing for me. I was trying to really help people see humanity is you know it's about being human it's about survival it's about trying to make the best of the time that we are here do you know mm -hmm. and that's what i was trying to do <laughs> you know, so following up on that the collection is divided into east side and west side stories how did you decide on that two-part structure well you know east side uh in detroit the East Side has traditionally been thought of as less than the West Side. The West Side is hoity-toity. It's, it's people who think of themselves as, well, we think of them as sedity, proper, elite, elitish, right? Whereas the East Side was where the people who came up from the South settled. So it was, you know, fried chicken, honky-tonk kind of thing like that. Of course, that's changed a lot. But that's the way it was when I was coming up. But I don't think that the stories necessarily reflect that. But the city itself has always been divided. Woodward is the dividing line. You got the east side of Woodward, the west side of Woodward. And I was just trying, because an aspect of it is trying to capture the history, the history of the city, and weave that into the lives of the people. I know, trying to do a whole lot, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what can you say? I don't know. 
So Shade's uh, Detroit Love Stories begins with a page and a half of definitions of the word shades, which is an exploration of various meanings from the world of art and mythology, literature, pop culture, uh, and inference and the ever unfolding book of life. And Shades is also a character in your book. Can you tell us how you settled on the title, The Shades, The Detroit Love Stories? Oh, wow. Because, well, I don't know. It's like, it just, it just was. <laughs> it's just, it just is. Uh, because, you know, you've got in, in Black culture and even in Latino culture, you've got shades of skin color. You've got the the idea that, in, especially in the 50s and 60s, wearing shades was a cool thing. You know, the dark glasses made you cool, jazz, bebop, that kind of thing. And then there are shades of how we perceive things. Perceptions are always shades because pe two people can see the same thing, but they'll see it in a different way. Uh, so it was just it was just the way it is. Usually, that, that's a kind of a thing that I do with most of my books. There's like a a word or something because I just finished a well, I'm still working on it, a collection of of uh, nature poems, which I know I'm a Detroiter, I'm an urban person, and I'm writing these nature poems, and it's called Boulders. And of course, I'm defining what a boulder is. You know, it's a thing that keeps you from moving on. It's a thing that that is sturdy and hard. But to me, if you look at a word, you can see so many different elements of it. And then you get, it's a springboard for ideas. Yes? No. <laughs> so. So the voices in this collection of short stories are so rich and varied. The narrators are children, adults, Women, men, young, old, they represent different cultures, east side people, west side people, different dialects. How easy or difficult was it for you to capture such a variety of voices in your writing? Consistency was the most difficult thing. Consistency of character, okay. But the, they represent the variety of people that I know family members, people that I deal with daily and so forth. So capturing the characters wasn't as difficult as, because a lot of it is written in dialect, which is difficult. <laughs> and honestly, I think it was a long time getting published because it was written in dialect. And I don't think that's necessarily a popular thing. You know, I'm not Alice Walker, so I don't have that kind of oh, I can do what I want to do. And people are looking for a particular type of writing. And when you do something that's not, I can even say not PC, because, you know, people have their perceptions of things, it's, it's difficult to get it published. Because, I mean, I, for a long time, I wrote, uh, what do you call it, romance, sensual um, romance. And I, it was much more publishable made a lot more money doing that than I do writing so-called literary fiction, you know, because uh, literary fiction has a, a different gauge, you know? Mm -hmm. So Before we started recording, um, we were chit-chatting about dreams as a source of inspiration. And your, some of your stories have an ethereal dreamlike quality. So how do dreams play a role in your storytelling? You know, well, when I, 
when I was in, in undergraduate in college, uh, one of my creative writing in, instructors, Esther Broner, said you should always keep a notepad next to your bed and a pen. And so you you can write those things down. Don't let those things escape because they're great material. Um, and I found that to be really true. There are a couple of stories in the book, uh, especially one of my favorite, uh, Loose in Progress, which was a was a complete dream. I just woke up like five or six o'clock in the morning and pulled out a notepad and just wrote it down. It's the little girl who is, uh, she's, be uh, sort of being babysitted by a, a cross-dresser, a guy who's a cross-dresser. And, you know, she lives like upstairs in the apartment and, and he's feeding her and so forth. Those characters came from a dream, totally. Of course, I rewrote it, edited it a couple of times, but I mean, unless it was in another life, I don't know those people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But they just came to me and and yeah, dreams are wonderful uh, for poetry and for fiction because you get characters, you get images, you know, and it allows you to free yourself a lot of times from from the rigidity of, of, of you know, traditional, you know, you know, you get some dolly going in there, some surrealism going in there. You're allowed to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You co-founded the Sisters of Color Writers Collective and founded the literary journal Seeds. What were the most important outcomes of that work? Oh, that was just very rewarding. Um, there were, uh, I went to SUNY, um, uh, State University of New York in Albany. And at the time, Toni Morrison was teaching there, um, but they didn't have a lot of people of color up there. There was me and another African-American woman and a Cuban woman. And we were complaining that, you know, nobody understood our work. Oh, my goodness, right? And, and Tony said, you know, you start your own group. So we started our own group. And because there were only three of us, of course, we allowed Anglo women because we had, they were colored too. They were, you know, and they, they, uh, anyway, we did a lot of things. We uh, held workshops in prisons. We help uh, poetry workshops in um, in places where you know uh, abused women took shelter. We um, we published a lot of women who probably would never have been published because you know it's a difficult thing, uh, and it it gave them you know pride in what they were doing. So it was just it was just very rewarding. After a while though, it took so much time because as Sarah was saying about writing those grants. Because I have to write the grants, and then you have to do the cover. It's just a lot of work. And I was teaching and doing, you know, raising my daughter. And I was, like, not getting any work done. That's probably why I didn't get my first book published until, like, what, 2005. Because I was doing all this other stuff, which was rewarding. But, you know, it was more community than personal. Mm -hmm. that, yeah. <laughs> Let's see. That's Sarah. That's why I understand about the grant writing because you've got to have money to do these things, and grant writing is it's a job. You know, it is, and it's a rabbit hole. <laughs> it never ends. 
Yeah. Your next project, you mentioned that you're working on some, some new poetry as well. You know, I tend to have several projects going in, at a time. I, 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 had, uh, I, I am working on the nature poems. Uh, right now it's chapbook size. And I actually got one of them that's going to be published at, uh, on a nature online journal, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> but uh, it's a kind of funny poem, so that's a good thing. But I'm actually uh, editing something that I've been working on for a few years now, which is a novel um, that takes place uh, in, in Colorado in 1870. Um, the protagonist is a, a once escaped slave, but of course by 1870, uh, you know, the war is over and she's free. And she's trying to make a living in this small town called Calvary, which is a fictitious town. But anyway, the novel is actually finished and I'm I'm editing it right now because, and that's the biggest part, the, the editing portion. And uh, so that's what I'm working on, the largest thing that I'm working on right now. So would you like to read something for us? It's a piece that I haven't read in public before because I was wondering whether you, because I have the book here, or can you see the book? It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. I love that cover. I do too. I, I kind of had to fight for that cover because they had a, like a dark, dreary one. And see, that's what I meant about like the underbelly. You have something dark and dreary, people think that you're talking about something sad. And mm -hmm. even though these people are in the novel are having, I mean, in the collection are having difficulties, they're not sad to me. They're just surviving and survival is a good thing, right? Yes. I mean, it's a happy, bright thing. Okay, I'm gonna try and read this. This is from, um, there's a piece in here called uh, Bell Fixes a Hole. Now the title is actually from a Beatles song. And uh, Bell is one of the main characters in the book. She tends to, well, she's been a prostitute. She's stolen things. She's raised a number of her children and she's lost children to the war and it's just she'd had a rough life and she's getting older and so now she's looking for solace okay and this is she finds a church okay i'm gonna try this right <laughs> the music felt good rock of ages left for me let me hide myself in thee. It swelled up in her and she hummed along with choir rocked back and forth, their voices pushing the note. A shiver raced up her spine and she could feel tears filling her eyes. Let the water and the blood, I'm not a from thy womb decide which flow. The rhythm washed over her as she mouthed the words, a song of prayer, be of sin and double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Eyes closed and right hand raised above her head, waving with the flow of the music, she testified to him, only her need. The preacher, a tall, dark-skinned, middle-aged man in a black robe with a wide purple stole trimmed in bright gold, stepped up to the pulpit. He was a good-looking man with a full, round voice. His words were measured, 
as though he was considering their meaning as he spoke. The ladies in the left pew got quiet, their eyes directed at the pulpit, the man and the voice. Even the married couples hushed and looked up to receive the word. Some say that Mary Magdalene is a much maligned woman, that she was a victim, not, not only of her time, but of the church. The minister's voice took on a sing-song cadence, the timbre getting deeper as he warmed to his story. Some say that she was an apostle and that because she was a woman, her words were dismissed, her contribution to our faith hidden and her person vilified. Others say that she was an adulterer and a prostitute who came to Jesus for forgiveness. Whatever the case, as we, learn, as we can learn from her faith, from her actions, turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 36. There was a bump and flutter as the congregation pulled out the Bibles and leafed through the thin pages. The flutter settled, and then there was silence as they waited to be led. Now, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. The preacher said before he began to read from the book, and he went into the Pharisee's home and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she found that Jesus died in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet weeping. And he began to wash his feet. And she began to wash his feet with, with her tears and did dry them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. The minister pulled a handkerchief from his sleeve, wiped his forehead, and looked out into the audience. Now the Pharisee asked Jesus, do you know who that woman is you let touch you? And Jesus answered him with a question. The preacher did a little jump to punctuate his statement. He asked Simon the Pharisee, if one man owed, five, owed $500 and another owed 50 to a moneylender who forgave both debts, which would love him more? And Simon said, why, the one with the larger debt. The church waited as though it hadn't heard this story a hundred times before. The preacher stood back, hands clasping the sides of his stole as he smiled at his audience and nodded with the benevolence of the Savior. And Jesus said, that's right, Simon. The crowd breathed and smiled back. A scattered course of amens came from the pew and the minister grinned out at his congregation. And then he let Simon have it. He said, see thou this woman, woman I came I came to your house and you gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no kiss. My head you did not anoint with oil, but this woman washed my feet with her tears and hath not ceased to kiss my feet. The preacher was jumping a little, a little bounce on, the, on his toes as he rose to the word, feeling the exaltation of the tale. He looked at Mary Magdalene, who had been maligned by this man, and he saw the love and faith and possibility of joy that radiated from her soul. The tall, beautiful man in the long robe began to read from the scripture again. Whereto I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven, thy faith save thee, go in peace. A chorus of amens filled the church, and a refrain of thank you, Jesus, rang from the left pew. Let us pray, the preacher said. As he closed the book, the choir sang Blessed Assurance, and Belle found it difficult to sing along. Her throat was clogged with tears, but she joined the refrain, This is my story, 
This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Head bowed, she leaned back into the solid wood of the, wood of the pew and let the tears flow. When the altar call began and the choir began its somber song, Belle watched the straggling steam of sinners make their way to the front of the church. The beautiful man looked over the congregation. You need not bear the burden alone, he said, and Belle felt like he was looking right at her, the light in his eyes pulling, drawing her forward. Have you ever been blessed? Have you ever longed for sweet rest? He spoke quietly, his voice keeping time to the rhythms of the choir as they sang. Come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus just now. He will save you, he will save you, he will save you just now. Belle nodded and stood. She gripped the edge of the pew in front of her, the oak solid beneath her feet. No sin is too great, the pastor said to her. Give your cares to Jesus, give your soul to Jesus. He won't let you down. Belle slipped into the aisle and made her way to the altar where she knelt and bowed her head. He will hear you, he will hear you, the choir sang. And Belle released the breath that she had been holding for so long. She bowed her head, welcoming the weight and warmth of the preacher's large hand when it came to rest on her head. And he prayed. Belle felt nothing, something rise up in her, something warm, like love. And she knew she wanted to give it to God. The choir rose, the rustle of their robes like a flock of birds released their voices rejoicing as they sang, God is so good to me, God is so good to me. The rhythm of their swelling voices rushed through Belle. Belle, as she stood, hand raised to God and feet doing a hop, skip dance to the beat of her joy. I know that was long, but. <laughs> oh, it didn't feel long at all. It was so enjoyable. Lovely voice as well. Oh, thank you. You know, from that, you might think, that I am a religious person, <laughs> but I am not. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's one of those things where everybody needs their solace and people find it in different ways. Mm -hmm. And it was, the story is about examining how and why people find faith in that way. Because sometimes, you know, if you don't have money for a psychiatrist, what do you do? <laughs> I know that's, that's being a little facetious, but I'm not saying that you know, people who faith is a good thing, especially if it gives you solace. <laughs> well, that was wonderful. Thank it's very you. moving. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being with us, Esperanza Sinchon, and have a wonderful, uh, wonderful summer. And thank you so much for sharing your beautiful work with us and good luck with the rest of your projects. Okay, thank you, you too. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.